Yeah. Uh, hopefully that thing uh, just ends up rocking, but like... Oh, it's worked every time. It's just that <laughs> my past experiences with audio devices have made me very leery of them. You know, I mean, uh, I can ex- uh, maybe maybe uh, if I explain it in engineering terms, it might might be easier. So, though, <laughs> what the what the box does is it uh, converts the analog like signal, which is you know like a waveform as you see it in your program. It's being transduced through your microphone, which is a little vibrating piece of metal, sends it down the cable into the box, and then that box interprets the electrical signal at an incredibly fast rate. In fact, generally, I mean, I think in your case, 441,000 times per second. Uh, and at and that's that's in um, that's in frequency, and then in amplitude, it's being measured at a, a 16-bit rate. And so that's at least that's what I'm pretty sure we set your thing to. And so what it does is it interprets that little line that goes and puts it into data. And then the box is like, all right, computer, this is the data. Okay, but like, then how come every time I have to set up a new one of these, it's such a nightmare? (laughs) Like, I get that that's supposed to be how they work. But no, in, you, like you have to do the rituals every time you get a new one. <laughs> well, that's true. Uh, but you just got to remember, forty-four point one thousand times per second. If your car moved that fast, you would make it around the world in a couple minutes. Well, yeah, but I mean, that's this is data. It doesn't have any mass. It's a little different. <laughs> I, I know. I just try to put it. No, oh, so. <laughs> But this is my other question, though, for the computer people, which is like, why do I need that? Like, I have the big the big computer. Why don't I, why can't I just have like a, a microphone to USB and have the PC do all this? Like, why, why do I need the separate box? Oh, why are absolutely. regular PCs too stupid to do that? <laughs> well, the answer to that is that the technology would then have to be in the microphone. And they do that. It, it's actually oh. like it's <laughs> the thing is, is that. Uh, through the component system, you have not only more control over the quality of the individual pieces, but also USB mics are specifically designed for people who can't afford a component system, <laughs> like which means that they are purposefully lower quality. No, but I just mean like the the CPU in my computer is a hell of a lot more powerful than whatever the hell's in my SSL board. So why can't it just do that directly? I oh. know I know you can put the hardware in the if you can take the hardware out of the box and put it in the microphone. I mean, why do you need that separate hardware at all? Oh, cuz there's no XLR input on a motherboard. <laughs> no, but that's not Yeah, but again, that's not you could just not have it come out in XLR. You can have it come out in or have a dongle that just converts from XLR to USB. The well, it can't be the microphone because the microphone is a is an electrical device, not a digital device. Not that electrical and digital are specifically different. I mean, there is actually technically Aren't a those a both process- just different t- types of RF. That I was gonna say, you know, you know, technically yes. But there has to be an interpreter, and if you want your interpreter to be your computer, it has to be set up to do that. Okay, and so 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 what you're saying is the PC makers don't build universal translators into their devices. Yeah, pretty much. I think they're designed <laughs> to do basic math. 
Okay, fair enough. I guess that makes sense. <laughs> Anyways, I, this is the, our new audio podcast. We've run out of things to talk about in the world of labor, and we're shifting to audio discussions, which is great. This is another place where I can be very useful because I don't understand any of this, so I could just serve as a proxy for the audience. <laughs> exactly. No, and that's that's great, and it also helps me get my mind in order because I can talk about audio while asleep. <laughs> and I'm I'm just a little tired right now, so this is just getting it booted up into actual wakefulness. So let's get going. to another episode of Work Stoppage, your favorite labor radio show. I'm Lena. And I'm Dan. And these are out of order this week. <laughs> yeah, because John is unavailable. But uh, I'm going to go through his little spiel. So if you would like to support us, please do so on Patreon at patreon.com slash workstoppage. It's the only way that we get funding, and we really appreciate it. If you haven't gotten stickers, make sure to message us on Patreon, and we will get those sent over to you. Jump in the Discord and write us a review somewhere. The common wisdom is Apple Podcasts, but apparently, you know, Spotify has it and a bunch of other places and again always a good option to carve it into a park bench go get on your neighborhood next door and tell all of the people on there to listen to our show they won't like it but it's an opportunity to make them very mad yeah and all the people on there are the worst people in your area so you know if you want to play pranks on folks that's another way to get the word out about the show hell yeah <laughs> that's a that's double win there but for to hop into our actual stories and not talk about next door or audio equipment, <laughs> uh, we're gonna do a quick follow up with just like a couple of quick points on the, I guess the genre of labor news that is the UAW now, <laughs> uh, basically since the you know uh, rank and file uh, seizure of power. Uh, last year in, in the union, it's become uh, really kind of the vanguard of the U.S. labor movement and has been doing a whole lot of shit. Uh, and so one of the things that we've covered lately that, that's been going on there has been the fight for a new contract at Allison Transmission. And the uh, uh, the first TA that was agreed to there initially by the bargaining team uh, didn't quite cut it and uh, was rejected by 90%. Uh, which led to uh, basically, you know, the standoff and the and and a a strike, and so very quickly, you know, the 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 bargaining team got back to work, took the input from the workers, negotiated a new TA, and now the workers at Allison Transmission have ratified a new contract this week, consolidating some really big wins. Um, so this this new contract is. One win is it's a four-year deal instead of a six-year deal like the last contract was. So that length of the contract, already a victory. That's a big (laughs) deal. Yeah, I mean, like, we almost never see that. Like, to to get a contract term lowered, like, Mm -hmm. that is actually just a huge win in its own right because then you can bargain more often for more sick shit. Exactly. Uh, And so... This new deal was approved by a margin of 82%, so uh, a big flip from 90% rejecting the last one to 82% uh, voting in favor of this one. And in addition to shortening the contract, 
It includes a raise to a minimum starting wage of $20 an hour, a $7,000 signing bonus for all employees. I think it's like two separate, but they like come add up to $7,000. Um, and then also major increases to employee contributions to workers 401ks. Uh, the deal also ends discriminatory wage tiers that had previously been in place, putting everyone on the same wage scale and provides increases to legacy pensions as well. So the leverage of the UAW, I mean, clearly just continues to grow, like not just within, you know, the stronghold of the, the workers of the big three, but also everywhere that the UAW has been organizing. And it's really great to see these progressive wins. And alongside that, you know, it's not just Allison transmission in places they already have unions, but the organizing drive that was launched at the end of the stand-up strike to try and organize workers at all of the non-union auto plants in the U.S. has also continued to really proceed at a very rapid pace because this week on a uh, live stream for uh, members of the union, uh, UAW President Sean Fain announced that another 1,000 workers at the VW plant in Chattanooga, Tennessee, have already signed up in addition to the more than 1,000 who had already signed up, which brings them to over 50% of the workforce already and pretty close to the threshold to file for a union election. So extremely cool news there. Hell yeah. I mean, like they're, they're really organizing at a quite a large, like quite a fast rate. Because... <laughs> Were you going to say an alarming rate? <laughs> no, I was. Yeah, maybe I did. But uh, it's, it's again, the sleepiness. Uh, but... No, I love the idea. It's like they're alarmingly good at organizing. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. You're right. And so, I mean, like, I don't think that this is even close to the, this is the, the rise. We're not seeing, like, the, the peak or, like, oh, we're at the absolute top of our mm -hmm. game. They're still getting going after, like, literally just winning, like, a year ago. Like, mm -hmm. this, this is just the beginning of, of what is going to be a, an unprecedented shift for the UAW. Well, yeah, I mean, you look at it, you have the, the first full year of the Biden administration, terrible. The first full year of the Sean Fain administration, actually, in a democratic system run by workers, extremely cool. So, yeah, I mean, that right there, honestly, I think should be really the only pitch we need for socialism. But there's so much more we can add to it as well. Yeah, but uh, we'll table that for the moment while we look at more corporations as they dig their heels in and declare war on employees' efforts to organize. I mean, obviously, looking at the UAW as a great victory and all of the victories that they're going to have, we have to also look at the many attacks in other sectors of the U.S. economy because these corporations have developed a, a new and innovative way to try to screw people over. And, and this tactic has been tried by, you know, the medieval times, Trader Joe's and Starbucks, and that was suing the union for trademark infringement. You the can't medieval call your union the company you work for because then people might know who you work for and then they would be confused over who you work for. <laughs> right, right. That, that absolute <laughs> nonsense uh, argument. But we're going to actually see how that panned out for them. Let's see how it played out for them. Uh, <laughs> they had uh, filed, at least Medieval Times had filed infringement lawsuits that were tossed out a while ago. And this time we get to see Trader Joe's up to bat. Well, last July, the company filed suit against Trader Joe's United, claiming that the merchandise that the union sold with its logo on it could, quote, dilute 
end quote, the Trader Joe's brand and cause reputational harm. And so here's where I want to intervene right now. First, I just want to like jump in and say like, it should be it should be legal to dilute brands and cause reputational harm. Like <laughs> those are those are in the case of the, like what we're talking about here, which is again a corporation. Though that's a good thing. Why, yeah. why is that? Like again. I know why it's illegal, but it's stupid that it's illegal. <laughs> no, it certainly doesn't make any sense because, I mean, what if uh, telling the truth was against the law? I mean, you'd have to be in some sort of, like, draconian <laughs> dictatorship. <laughs> dictatorship of some, Damn. you know, elite small group of, of people or some, like, you know, like, uh, maybe the, the capitalist class. Uh, but suck. anyway. <laughs> glad, glad, glad that we don't live in a society like that that's right that's right but uh as reported by dave jamieson of the huffington post this past friday january 12th trader joe's trademark infringement case against trader joe's united finally landed in front of a human being who immediately recognized it as as silly as it was judge ernan vera of the California Central District Court correctly chided Trader Joe's for trying to, quote, weaponize the legal system, end quote, mm-hmm. in order to try to crush the union, which, I mean, it's surprising to hear that from a judge because yes. uh, it's really like, you know, you should just be handing out way more rulings with that sort of language. <laughs> uh, he warned we found that the one good judge. <laughs> I guess. I honestly I still doubt it though. You know? Yeah, probably not on the whole, but on this one. Yeah. Well, he warned that the suit, in his view, came very close to violating federal rules against filing frivolous lawsuits. And that they knew that there was no chance of winning, and it was specifically just to harass and intimidate people. And, and the judge himself threatened uh, potential sanctions on Trader Joe's for call like calling such a bullshit lawsuit in the first place in his decision dismissing the suit the judge said quote this action is undoubtedly related to an existing labor dispute and it strains credulity to believe that the present lawsuit would have been filed absent the ongoing organizing efforts that trader joe's employees have mounted successfully in multiple locations across the country it is simply not plausible to imagine a reasonable consumer going to the union's website, purchasing a union-branded coffee mug, and mistakenly believing that it was sold by Trader Joe's, end quote. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously the judge has to lay it out in such flat terms, but, <laughs> like, it really does. It just seems, we pointed out how ridiculous it is. But, I mean, the fact that even some capitalist judge can recognize it shows just how absolute bullshit it is and well, how that's it's not going to hold up in Starbucks's case either. Well, and I mean, that's where I'll jump into already rolling back my praise for the judge, which is that it's like, I mean, obviously, look, it's good to dismiss the thing and make fun of the lawyers who who, who did it. But, like, if if this doesn't rise to the standard of a frivolous illegal lawsuit, what does? Like... It, I get him being like, this is really borderline. I'm, but you know, that's I'm not sure if it's appropriate. Okay, but then what? What's a more ridiculous lawsuit than this? It's like, dude, you just laid out how their case makes no sense and how they clearly only initiated it to harass the workers. So if you believe that and you wrote it in your own opinion, so I would hope you do, then <laughs> why not sanction them? Well, and because the answer it's... is because it's a it's a big fucking company. <laughs> And it's also not illegal to harass workers. I mean, even if it is well, in law illegal, 
it's not really illegal. Yeah, one of those cases, the bizarre case of where the the spirit is like less applying of of punishments than the <laughs> the actual letter. Um, but yeah, it's it's frustrating just because it's like why I like because they have the whole oh we have an anti slap law so that people don't just harass each other with endless lawsuits. This is harassing each other with endless lawsuits. This is what that law is ostensibly for. But uh, again, yeah, clearly only applied in the case of individuals and not in the case of very powerful corporations. Yeah, yeah, clearly. And I mean, talking more about, I mean, I mentioned Starbucks and how their pending lawsuit is still out there. And let's actually hope that in this case, they actually get slapped with that fucking frivolousness. And, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, I mean, like, clearly the Starbucks is just getting ready to get slapped with uh, at least something, maybe just a standard denial, although it really does depend on the judge. Yeah, and keeping it within the world of, uh, you know, retail and and coffee and moving on from that discussion about Starbucks, uh, you know, obviously we've covered a ton of stories, not only about the surgeon organizing at cafes specifically, but also, unfortunately, another trend amongst workers at those cafes, which is that a lot of these small businesses, whether they're cafes or restaurants or other small retail outlets, uh, when they have a worker organizing drive, sometimes those uh, members of our petty bourgeoisie uh, decide, oh, uh, actually, you know what? I would rather not even have a business. This, I would not ha- let the business exist. Uh, then allow my workers to have some small amount of say in how their workplace is run, uh, which, of course, is one of the things that's so absurd <laughs> about capitalism that a private individual who doesn't even necessarily work at these places gets to decide whether they're open or not and whether the employees get to continue to have their livelihoods and whether the community gets to have the goods and services the business provide. They just get to decide that and the workers have no say. And that to me, doesn't make any sense. And I think uh, we have a story this week, unfortunately, that really illustrates how uh, fucked up that is, which is specifically about the workers at Ada Coffee in Pittsburgh. Uh, Because on Thursday, January 11th, 23 out of 25 workers at the uh, four-store chain Ada Coffee in Pittsburgh announced the formation of a union with UFCW Local 1776 to fight for better pay, consistent schedules, and to enforce the law on things like paid breaks and paid time off. Uh, The chain had expanded several times since opening in 2016, uh, but workers say that they were never provided with the paid breaks and PTO that they were supposed to get by law, which is really the main thing that started pushing them to unionize. I mean, it is definitely a good tactic to form a union in order to uphold the law in in these cases. But the fact that it was around these really basic allowances, Mm -hmm. just, I mean, just absolutely absurd. Yeah. And so the reason I go back to mention the history of the chain and the fact that it's expanded several times is to underline the questionable timing of what happened after the workers announced the formation of their union. (laughs) Uh, which is that when they first brought their union organizing to the chain's owner, hoping for recognition and to work together, they were ignored. And then on the very next day, uh, the chain's owner abruptly announced that they would shut the chain down. All four stores. Nope, we're just closing everything. Claiming that the store has been losing money since they opened almost eight years ago. And that the timing has is nothing to do with the union. Total coincidence. Uh, On social media, the owner said, quote, 
We tried to stay optimistic and have been consistently reevaluating our business model in efforts to keep fulfilling our mission. Despite everyone's best efforts, our monetary reserves are depleted and we need to close our doors, end quote. That's such bullshit. I mean, like, so I just want to get this timeline correct. They had been organizing, and on the 10th, they were like, hey, boss, we would like voluntary recognition. They didn't hear for 24 hours. They then announced publicly that they were forming their union and were going to file for uh, recognition. And then that same day, the boss was like, well, we've been reevaluating probably over the last 24 hours and decided, uh, fuck everybody. (laughs) I believe that is the timeline. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, I mean, it's fucked, and it's the whole thing. It's like, <laughs> could you come up with a better lie? Like, because the thing is, is that even if the co- coffee chain wasn't making money, which is possible, I mean, these do tend to be low-margin industries unless you're in a monopoly position like Starbucks, uh, where you can use economies of scale and and mass worker exploitation uh on a really large scale with like controlling market share outside that position. It, it is a low margin business usually, but the, to, to claim that it has nothing to do with the union drive when you announce immediately following the announcement of the union drive is simply not believable. Yeah. I mean, like it, it definitely doesn't seem very believable because even if they had been like, well, th- things are tight and all that, at no point, and this is just maybe, again, my constant repeating critique of this system, at no point did they go to the employees and were like, mm-hmm. hey, this is what the books look like. This is what we're going through. They just said, well, you know, for a long time now, don't look at the books. The books have well, said right. bad things. I also just, the, the the other thing that bugs me about the claim is that you expanded your chain four times in the last eight years. Like if 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 you were doing so bad, how did you expand? <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, and so, like, and I was don't it know. and was it every single store that like you know it was? Right. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, because it, it just it's like it clearly. I mean, even the best case interpretation is that they are like they're doing fine, but not amazing profit wise, and they're just like, ugh. Now we have to give over a bunch of control of this. I don't want to deal with that. Fuck that. Yeah, definitely. And that's that's the charitable interpretation. Like so, even, like yeah, I mean if they're if their profits, let's let's imagine their growth was 2% when it's supposed to be 3 or 4. And so that's and that's sometimes justification enough from some capitalists despite the fact that that is still growth. Uh then the fact that like, oh, we might that might drop down to 1.5% because we might have to actually give people breaks. It's like Yeah, I mean and it's fucked because, you know, now the workers at all four stores, uh, you know, have been fired. And they're now, I mean, thankfully, you know, they did form their union before all this happened. And so they have that organization together to, you know, work to get relief and and, and bring in uh, assistance from the community while they all, you know, seek out new jobs. Uh, which, and it, that's great. And, you know, there is a GoFundMe, which we'll we'll put in the show notes. And it's it's raised over $20,000 for the fired workers so far, which is great. And, you know, they've got the solidarity of workers nearby. I, I saw, you know, they posted on social media that workers at a nearby brewery had also got the owners of the brewery to donate like a dollar of every draft uh, to the workers uh, relief fund, which wonderful stuff. But my big thing here is that it's like, this should not even have been an option. Like, even even under a capitalist system, you can make, you know, social democratic reforms, like things like 
right of first refusal for the workers where the owners are like, well, we, this isn't going well. So we're going to sell the business or in this case, shut it down. They shouldn't be able to just unilaterally close it. Even like you could even pass a thing where they're required to offer like, okay, we don't want to run this anymore. Well, you have to give it to the workers then. It's like, they're the ones whose livelihoods depend on the running of the, the shop. See if, you know, give it to the workers, let them run it. I bet they'll probably do pretty good. <laughs> I would love to see an institutionalized right of first refusal. Because like, for, and I, I don't say that like just abstractly because like there is, there's a, coffee shop here in in providence where that exact thing happened where the owner of a pretty popular local cafe was i don't want to run this anymore and then the workers took it over and now it's a co-op and it's going great (laughs) hell yeah that and that should be the 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 rule not the you know exception Mm -hmm. exactly and so but uh just to to just add one more story on our like little roundup of, of cafe organizing this week, uh, and of course, you know, all solidarity with the the fired workers at Ada. That's some complete bullshit. But uh, unfortunately, carrying over the kind of impunity that that bosses have in these cases, when we're, you know, Starbucks obviously highlights that, uh, you know, because we've seen over and over again that. They have resisted every order from the NLRB to actually follow the law when they've illegally fired workers and when they've, they have themselves have illegally closed stores in response to workers organizing. And we, they've shown that they can drag these decisions out for years. And that imbalance, you know, in power in the legal system is exactly why it's so important that we have big unions with as much leverage as possible so that we can, you know, enforce the demands of workers really regardless of what the courts say. But that's also why the corporations use the court system so much. And this week, there was, Starbucks pushed this to a new level where they appealed the case of the Memphis Seven, the, the seven workers, uh, largely black women workers who were fired in Memphis, I think two years ago now at this point. Um, yeah, I think so. Uh, and then the NLRB very uh, was like, yeah, you just fired the entire organizing committee. This is clearly retaliatory. That's illegal. You have to hire them back. But Starbucks has never accepted that ruling and has now asked the Supreme Court and has gotten the Supreme Court to take the case up. They are basically arguing that the NLRB should not be able to impose temporary relief while appeals are pending because there are different rulings by different district courts that might be uh, like contradictory. Basically, what this would mean, I mean, as far as I can tell, again, I'm not a lawyer, but from reading about it and trying to understand it, basically, right now, even as relatively impotent as the NLRB is in a lot of ways, they do have some forms of relief, slow as they are, where they can, you know, once they've ruled against a company, maybe a year after somebody was fired, they can say, okay, no, you have to rehire them. And if the company appeals, they say, well, whatever, we've made our ruling, you have to rehire them, you can appeal. But in the meantime, you here's a temporary order, you still have to rehire them. Now, what they're saying is, no, no, that's exceeding the authority of a regulatory agency agency that's terrible and horrible and the most the most brutal violation of human rights of a corporation of all time and the supreme court's decided to hear that case which is an indication that they there's a decent chance that the the majority of hyper reactionaries on there will could rule in their favor yeah i mean it it really is kind of upsetting that the nlrb as again as you pointed out as ineffective as it is in many ways is still too far for these capitalists. I know, it's ridiculous. It's like, 
There's a system by which when we blatantly and illegally fire somebody for organizing that two years later, we might have to rehire them at the same wages. Yeah. And that's it. That is the greatest crime ever. It's like, it's, it's so ridiculous, but because it's, this this is how capitalism works. I mean, there's a decent chance that the Supreme Court will rule like that because it's exactly the sort of case that this court loves because they can do things like basically essentially gut the NLRB while still leaving it in place. They're not like uh, dissolving it. It's still there. It just has even less power than it already did. Kind of similar to how OSHA functions. And so it, 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 it has that recuperative role for them while gutting what was the ostensible purpose and like, you know, what was a victory at its time, uh, you know, for a great ruling class upsurge in the 1930s. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think that it's worth moving to the next story, which is actually about OSHA in a small mm-hmm. part, because, I mean, longtime <laughs> listeners and pa- and the patrons who checked out our 2023 year in review might recognize many aspects of these stories, because now we are back to talking about how children in this country are exploited en masse. This week, we got news that OSHA had made an attempt to actually find for a murder of a Guatemalan 16-year-old via a chicken eviscerator machine last June. As we know, the maximum fine that OSHA can charge a company is right around $15,000. But in this particular case, they've added up a total of 17 violations, 14 of them being major or serious violations. I don't remember the phrasing of that. uh, To add up to a fine of $212,646 for this particular case. And, I mean, that's better, I guess. Yeah, I mean, this to me, I mean, look, this story is fucking horrible and we're going to get into the details of it. Like, I don't know. I, I, this to me is an indication of like a, a well-intentioned, uh, uh, people like individual bureaucrats at, at OSHA trying to do their best within a system designed to thwart them from doing anything. Well, um, and hopefully it also comes from the the criticism that has been not only from us on this show, but many people across the labor and other industries uh, held against OSHA because of their really awful $15,000 maximum fine. Yeah, and I mean, like $200,000 isn't enough, but, and again, will likely be reduced on appeal, uh, mm-hmm. but, but like... I think it at least shows that the at least you know one of the investigators involved in this from OSHA understood that finding a company fifteen thousand dollars for killing a child is an atrocity. Yeah, yeah, and I mean the two hundred thousand dollars isn't a huge amount better, but it, they they tried. Yeah, and I mean to talk a little bit about this this sixteen year old kid. I mean his name was Duban Tomas Perez. He was actually just going into the ninth grade at the time of his murder. And in his obituary, it said along with like enjoying going to the gym and listening to music like other kids his age, he was very proud to have bought his own car and just enjoyed working on it. This is the kind of thing that kids do. He had three siblings and spent a lot of time with his mother, Adilma. And I mean, it's just, it's just so fucking 
awful that this came to pass in the first place and it's just un- unacceptable that this death primarily occurred because mac jar poultry needed a wider profit margin what and i mean the thing with this is is that people always chalk this stuff up to like this is horrible but you know look it's well so jobs are dangerous accidents happen it's horrible but that but doesn't necessarily mean anyone's at fault this is exact people i i saw folks very correctly pointing out on Twitter that, like, this is exactly the same shit that Upton Sinclair was talking about in the, his novel The Jungle, which largely, you know, played a big role in in creating a national furor that created the led to the creation of the USDA. But, like, ultimately, when we're talking, like, what this sort of thing exposes is that what people were, like, the rich, the ruling class, what bothered them so much about the story in the jungle was a concern that their food might get contaminated because of it, not because they were so concerned for the workers actually involved and the horrors that actually occur with them, because that shit is still going on. Right, because if they were concerned about the actual like conditions in which these these sorts of events happen, I mean, MacJar themselves certainly knew of the dangers in their facilities because they had been cited 23 times previously and the inspections by OSHA happened three times due to uh, other murders that that they were responsible for so this is not like something that is like unknown they don't and also I mean I didn't include this in my notes but I mean but Dubon was 16 when their specific policy was that 17 was the earliest that they hire people so there's that in its own right but then on top of that the fact that like 17 year olds like well and i mean but it ultimately the, th- the thing is is that it's look you can design these machines to be safer not like look it's a it's in a slaughterhouse so they're like there's always going to be the risk of things like losing a finger or something like that's always going to be a thing in a place like this until it's completely automated. But there's absolutely no reason that you can't design these machines so that this sort of a horrific injury can't happen. It's just more expensive and the machines won't be necessarily as speedy and productive as, as they are right now. And that is all they care about. Yeah. And I mean, just to continue these, this, this kind of, um, vein of thinking on the 9th of January as a continuation on the legislative attacks on children there was actually a bill introduced in Indiana which would allow kids 14 or older if they have completed 8th grade to drop out of school and work on corporate farms during school hours which I mean if they did this this would would have legal would this would legally allow these children to work for forty hours per week, and while it's chi- and while these child labor violations found by the Department of Labor have reportedly increased in twenty twenty three by fifty percent, this is actually an example where the legislators have decided that you know what we need to get those numbers down by legalizing these atrocities. Well, I mean, it's, I, I will say it is consistent <laughs> with the general strategy of assault on the institution of public education by, by the, the reactionaries in this country because there's been a concerted effort to destroy the entire concept of public education and basically return to, to the overall system that was in this country in like 
the pre-Civil War era where it's like you maybe have like this bare bones elementary education system for the plebs, maybe. And then it's just recognizing that that class is never going to rise above its strata. It's not allowed to. So what further education would they need? All they need to be able to do is either, you know, pick things in a field or hit a button or something like that. So why bother giving them any further education? And the rich can have, you know, all the rest of their private institutions. So really, this sort of thing where they're just like, they're just saying, yeah, we these these kids should be allowed to go work because there's no point in educating them. And of course, again, there's an it's this is all extremely racialized. Mm-hmm. And so like it's I like it's horrific, but it fits within their like openly uh, racist, uh, <laughs> capitalist, ruling class worldview. Because as you point out many times, is it these politicians' children that are going to be dropping out in before ninth grade in order to go work 40 hours a week at a farm? Somehow, no, I don't think Chuck Grassley's great-grandchildren are going to be, you know, out there working for those, uh, you know, firms we talk about every other week doing, like, slave labor in the fields. No, and it's purposefully uh, like almost related to like a form of eugenics where it's like, oh, these poor, poor people, they're never going to, as you said, rise above their station. And so why don't we just make it easier for them to, you know, be in the position where they can be exploited in this way? Yeah, it's, it's ironic that, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's continuing the every accusation is a confession because it's the reactionaries who wrote their book calling socialism the road to serfdom when what the hell is this? Yeah. Uh, but the l- logical evolution of capitalism and that is, you know, return to feudalism. <laughs> mm-hmm. And while these examples of systemic child abuse by the capitalists is especially egregious, it also still remains that the largest industries that violate the rights of children are businesses in the fast food industry. Mm -hmm. Since 2020, the Department of Labor has found that around 13,000 violations have happened in this industry alone, with work time and duration violations being the most common, meaning that when, you know, kids are only supposed to work a certain number of hours, they work extra hours or they work later than they're supposed to and often we talk about mcdonald's wendy's or dairy queen as like the core violators but mostly due to them having so many different locations to actually commit these crimes but in reality there are smaller chains like slim chickens marco's pizza and tropical smoothie cafe who are known to have rates proportionally as high like they these are like you know small business chains and they are just as known for child labor violations yeah and i I think the thing with these is that like when people see the individual stories about these they're like well that's bad but i mean because you know the 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 horrific cases we hear of in like manufacturing and other and, and industry and stuff like this where you have like people getting murdered uh like those are the standout things like the thing we talked about with the sawmill like a week or two ago same thing it, those are the ones that that i think grab the headlines it, it just like, justifiably so like everyone should be horrified at it and it should move people to action but these are so egregious because this whole fucking industry is just is based on this it's propping itself up on abusing <laughs> Uh, the labor of kids like and they're doing it not you know by throwing them into a deep fryer like a lot of these fucking slaughterhouse places but by overworking them by working them later than they should be all of which harms the ability of those kids to you know learn in school 
Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, like, there are definitely plenty of examples of children getting burned by deep fryers, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, as Absolutely. one example. But S- Slim Chicken spokesperson Julie Ma tried to cover their ass, saying, quote, Being part of an industry that serves as the training ground for so many young people's first jobs, we take these matters to heart. Training ground, and and adding that the Slim Chickens that or that Slim Chickens is quote working to assist our independent franchisees to understand the requirements of the applicable child labor laws in the jurisdictions in which they operate. End quote. Did you know it's just not? It's just they're just ignorant, Dan. They just didn't guess, know the law. I guess that's. I guess that's all it is. People didn't understand the incredible growth. And 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 uh, self actualization that people get by working at Slim Chickens for seven seventy six an hour. Yeah, and and like the idea that's like, oh well, you know what, this would be fine if it were if it were legal. Like you know, I mean, we would be doing like this. Really, yeah, the problem isn't that we have child labor. The problem is that it's illegal. <laughs> yeah, because that's exactly what that kind of statement is saying. And in a Washington Post article on the topic, which, I mean, some of this previous information when, is from when that. When crime is criminalized, only criminals will get to do crime. Like, is that their <laughs> argument? <laughs> That's funny. Uh, the Washington Post, they said that uh, these violations were especially high at franchisee locations, like different businesses that have franchises. And they also said that the owners of these businesses, uh, they kind of maybe created a small excuse, in my opinion, for this by saying that they have like tighter margins because in-house stores don't have franchising fees, and also the owners of these businesses are less committed to making the brand look good because they're I mean, just. Well, that- all that is is explaining the hollow lie behind the franchise model that the that the businesses are not controlled by the corporation, which of course they are. <laughs> and it all that does is it puts the onus on the corporation a little bit more than the individual petit bourgeois franchise owner. Although, in my view, not really. They're they're both just as guilty. Right, and I mean, what you're, I mean, maybe I'm I'm putting words in your mouth here, but uh, there should franchisee models should be illegal. There is no reason well, why. Why it's that just those a, should even it, exist? It's a shell game. That's all it is. It's it's it it's a way for uh, it, it basically turns McDonald's part, rather than being like a restaurant tour into a like brand holding company where the uh, where they're controlling every aspect of their brand, so they have like control but no responsibility over any of their uh, restaurants. Which just in it, it all that does is enable this sort of horseshit. Because whenever any individual franchisee breaks a law like this, they can be like, "Oh no, it's not us. It's the franchisee." Even though this is happening systematically across the entire fucking country. Well, and I think that what when we go further into this, we're going to see that it was that is really the purpose is so that they can get that law breaking more easily with that excuse. Because mm-hmm. I mean, it is going to be laid out uh, here that it is often more the franchisees that end up committing these these uh violations but but let me let me just continue here because nina mast of the uh an economic analyst of the economic policy institute institute said on the topic quote the franchise model is a major factor in child labor violations because it incentivizes a race to the bottom in terms of labor standards end quote which i think 
really does show that the, that obfuscation that that again mm-hmm. shell game as you said it has a one particular purpose which is to increase the profit margins and decrease labor standards yeah, and exactly. so that's why these particular violations happen in these particular locations more often and i mean right. like because well, that's the they're like, oh, well, the reason all these franchises do so much child labor violations is because the franchise system makes it hard for them personally to make such big a profit. And to and they're like, and 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 that's why the problem is the child labor laws? Like, no, that's why, like, so just ban franchising. There you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and institute real punishments for yeah. breaking the law, not a, me- a measly like $5,000 fine or whatever bullshit these tend to be. It's less than that. Usually, I think it's a few hundred bucks per violation, like when it's just a time thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. Very, very good point. And I mean, this like- This would be very easy to solve through the power of the state, but the capitalist state has no interest in solving this problem. <laughs> and what sort of, what, what would that solution look like if there were no franchisees or like franchises? I mean, if we look at- Businesses that don't use a franchise model like Chipotle, Panda Express, Cracker Barrel, In-N-Out Burger, Steak and Shake, Sweet Gun, no, Sweet Green, White Castle, and Boston Market, according to this article, the number of federal child labor violations that they have had totaled 32 since 2013, which, I mean, this is now... Ch- Chipotle has had many other violations. Say, many. Other- I thought I could have sworn with Chipotle specifically. <laughs> it, they were not federal child labor violations. Oh, were they just like systemic wage theft violations? Yes, they're oh. they're really known for wage theft and I mean, other. That's crimes. not really better, but I guess it is different. <laughs> it is different. So, if we're concerned in this particular case about child labor, it's there is like a little bit of merit to say that the franchisee model is one of the things that exacerbates the violations of child labor law. Well, because part of it is that like. If it's if you don't have the franchise model, it allows the investigators to go after the entire corporation at once. Right. Whereas with this model, they have to whack a mole go after each individual location. So yeah, that by itself, and although increasing penalties would also help, because this is the thing, mm-hmm. like the way people think that like punishments work on individuals ignore the fact that like crime committed by individuals is almost entirely caused by socioeconomic conditions whereas crime committed by companies is caused by the inherent profit mechanisms built into capitalism and so like even if you want to run your social democratic system you have to be able to whack those companies with a stick to keep them from doing stuff like that mm-hmm. and even then it's going to create and inevitable cycles of crises, which will throw your reformers out of office and do things like neoliberal austerity. And then that just brings us back to this. So really, folks, if you want to solve this problem, really the only reasonable pragmatic solution is a socialist revolution. So anyways. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I mean, like, just to, just to top this story off real quick, one of the other things that this article really talked about was how when children are, and I mean, they were talking more specifically about these more egregious violations of, like, time uh, relations for these kids, that they would often end up... Uh, graduating later because they had less time to focus on their studies and i think that that in its own right just shows the problem with children being forced to work 
in the first place because this is the thing that is often not acknowledged and it like had some allusions in this article and i mean like not i'm this article was by Lauren K. Gurley, and, and she does like good writing overall, but I also think her editors made some points in there that really kind of skewed it in a direction that I did not think was as good. Uh, to, to say that, like, oh, child labor could be okay. In reality, <laughs> our goal should be to end child labor. Well, yeah, it's like, we, I, thought we've, I thought we answered this question 100 years ago. Why are we still arguing about it? They were exactly. right when they, they were fighting to get rid of it a hundred years ago. Let's just stick with that. Yeah, but uh, you know something else that workers have been fighting for a long time for and have been right the whole time, which is is the right to strike. And and uh, we've talked a lot on this show about how I think a lot of people don't know that while there is much higher union density in the public sector than there is in the private sector, in a lot of cases, they've got really, like, relatively more restricted rights when it comes to what they can do as labor organizations. And so we've got another story in that realm, once again, from Massachusetts teachers who have been some of the coolest (laughs) and most willing to disregard the law uh, folks that we've seen in, in the labor movement recently, which has been really dope. So because uh, we talked just last year about teachers in Brookline who went on a illegal strike and won uh, like one of the best contracts they've had in decades. And now uh, this week, it's it's the turn of workers in Newton, basic, you know, one of the, the bigger suburbs of Boston, uh, where teachers have been without a contract since August of last year. And so this Friday, the, the workers uh, of Newton, despite the fact that it is still illegal in Massachusetts for public workers, specifically teachers, to strike, have gone on strike. <laughs> and uh, that strike is in response to the fact that negotiations have really broken down between the school district and the teachers uh, so far that they that not only do they have to have an appointed mediator rather than just being able to, you know, engage directly across the table, uh, but they're actually bargaining in separate rooms rather than directly across from each other, presumably because being in each other's presence could lead to potential violence, I guess. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I know. Like, to to be in such a uh, contentious, deb- like, uh, negotiation that you have to, like, we there we need to put the, the wall up in between you two. I guess, yeah. It's just, wow. And so, uh, I don't know why the administrators are so ridiculous about this but like because obviously you know the teachers here as we've seen so time and time again are their their big demands are really fighting for the lowest paid uh workers among them the paraprofessionals where some of the biggest demands from these teachers are for the highest raises of course to go to those with lowest pay but the school's bargaining council has claimed that there's no space in the budget to raise those workers pay which again i would argue is okay well then Let's raise look your at the budget. budget. Yeah. <laughs> because again, what's the whole you're like we we have an education department. Okay, why? Well, to educate the students. Okay, well, what are they supposed to do that? Well, they run schools. Well, clearly you haven't budgeted enough money to run your schools if you mm-hmm. don't have enough money in your budget to pay your workers. So it sounds like you need to revise that budget. <laughs> mhm. And that Definitely. may mean raising taxes on rich people. Well, fucking do it. <laughs> like this is it's, it's the thing people act like oh like they act as if this is set in stone there's nothing you can do. It's like no, you can do stuff. You just refuse to use the political will to do so. Well, they did try to blame the the people of the community for rejecting a tax increase as the as the impetus for these uh austerity 
negotiations. Okay, but then, like, you should have done a better job designing the tax increase. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, ugh. I mean, part of it, I will say, Newton is a, uh, there's a lot of money in Newton. So uh-huh. uh, that that definitely plays plays a role here. But, yeah, originally the teachers were demanding a 17% pay increase over the life of their contract, while the district was offering a grand total of 5%. Uh, yeah, that's not enough. Uh, and now, you know, through some negotiations, the two sides have come a little closer together, uh, where the workers actually came down 1% more to thir- to a 13% demand, uh, but all that Newton's administration is willing to offer is 8%, which the <laughs> teachers have pointed out doesn't even hit the current cost of living in- increases uh, on, like, the average of the area, which is over 8%. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Yeah. Um, the other thing, of course, is that Newton is a very big school district. Like, despite like they're a suburb of Boston, but like they might as well kind of be part of the city. <laughs> like, uh, it's basically right there. It's got uh, it's the it's the it's actually the largest school district in, in Massachusetts. Really, uh, I guess that is because Boston is like subdivided into so many uh, smaller pieces. But yeah, there's twelve thousand students in it, and again, and, and like I mentioned, is one of the wealthier uh, parts of the state. And the school, yeah, like you said, Lena, uh, the school's being like, well, we tried to raise taxes, but again, it's like, well, how, how did you try to raise taxes? Also, <laughs> I mean, I I think that it's always worth being like, so what are the administrators' salaries looking like? Well, if really yes, are and- if if there is so, such a budget issue, why don't we uh, look at the highest paid people in this district? Well, and that's true. You know, I was being a bit narrow focused on the fact that you could raise taxes to pay for it because it's also not the only way to pay for it. The other way would be to simply uh, stop paying the cops however much ridiculous amount of money the people of Newton are paying them, which I can assure you is an absurd amount of money. Oh, definitely. Uh, Or like you said, maybe look at bringing the administrator salaries more in line with something like the salaries of the people who actually teach the kids. Um, or even but, the office staff who do some essential work. Sure. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot of ways that you could deal with this, but you know, uh, unfortunately <sighs> this is one of those things that's frustrating sometimes about the sources we have to work with because like really the one good source I could find for this strike was the Boston globe. And unfortunately the globe is a relatively centrist organization, uh, and so they're not necessarily prone to writing the most labor-friendly articles. And so when they wrote about the strike, they really only focused on the wage demands and the arguments around that uh, between the union and the administrators because, of course, there are other demands from the teachers, but unfortunately, they were not covering them. So, uh, again, a consistent criticism of the uh, corporate media is their refusal to actually cover workers' issues in a useful way. Uh, But so far, the plan is for this strike to last one week. uh, And the council has already come out and preemptively been like, this strike is illegal and it will do nothing. It will not affect us in any way. Uh, But based on the recent history, I'm really not sure we should believe that (laughs) because similar strikes in places like Brookline and other uh, nearby like uh, towns around Boston have actually been extremely successful so, you know, all solidarity with these teachers and the best of luck enforcing these administrators to come to their senses. 
Yeah, absolutely. But moving on to our next story, we need to talk about Macy's workers who, with UFCW Local 3000 in Washington, have uh, been at the bargaining table with the company for nearly a year, working to hammer out a fair contract. And recently, Macy's issued a last, best, and final offer, which, I mean, the contract was not only bad, but just egregious and and mm-hmm. would actually make sure make it so that the workers lives would be significantly worse so on martin luther king jr day this past monday workers at macy's alderson's mall location in linwood washington walked out on a ulp strike to protest the unfair negotiations Retail workers are, I mean, as we constantly point out, some of the most underpaid, abused workers in the country. And Macy's offer is just beyond insulting in that it would make the conditions far worse. Per UFCW 3000, their last, best, and final offer would provide raises of only 50 cents an hour. They would eliminate insulting yeah they would also eliminate the union wage scale that protects long-time workers rejects a proposal for safety language that prevents workers from being disciplined for calling store security meaning that they would basically not be allowed to call store security without getting disciplined which is ridiculous Mm -hmm. and it also eliminates martin luther king jr day as a paid holiday Uh, just like on bold move like to just be so openly like fuck you (laughs) like like that because a lot of times you know when you see businesses do these sorts of like aggressive negotiating tactics in like where they think they have all the leverage they'll still be like look you know we're in a competitive business environment and we're trying to just make this work for everybody and in this they're just like no we're taking mlk day fuck all of you (laughs) right it's so fuck in a 50s 50 cent raise an hour yeah just you can't you cannot be offering raises in cents it's 2024 a pizza costs 25 dollars now yeah yeah (laughs) very absolutely and i mean the union said in a statement quote this insulting offer was made by a company that has recorded more than a billion dollar annual profit margin a company made profitable off the work of the people now walking the strike line end quote and all while the company has been trying to subvert the union by dealing directly with individual workers, refusing to negotiate over core issues and changing work conditions without notice or discussion, which is just another violation of the contract. I mean, they're yeah, not in status quo or anything like that, but still, it's it's at least a violation of the contract. And also, it, like the anti-collectivist union-busting nature of trying to force individuals to negotiate when there is a union is just, like, it just pisses me off. It really well, they're does. Just, they're, they're, like, they're so contemptuous of the workers that they're just acting like the union isn't, isn't there, like treating them like they're children and just ignoring them. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's so demeaning. It's fucked. Yeah. And so despite the frigid temperatures during this week's Arctic blast, dozens of Macy's locations workers began picketing at the Alderson Mall location on Monday. They've also put Macy's on notice that it's not only that store that struck, but the company but if the company doesn't reverse course soon, they'll be joined by fellow workers at three other nearby locations as well. And I think that that's a really awesome escalation mm-hmm. from the union being like, this is not going to stand. We will like make this hurt more for you if you don't start respecting the workers. 
And yeah, what, it gives them more leverage to be like, it's not, we haven't expended everything by, by striking at this one store. Mm-hmm. Well, and that, and also on top of that, while the strike is just at the Anderson Mall location now, all the stores in Washington are calling for a boycott, saying, quote, for the Bellis Fair store in particular, though Linwood is the only store currently striking, we ask customers to boycott our store and other Macy's locations as well to show a strong unified front and let Macy's know their customers won't let them get away with continuing to commit unfair labor practices, end quote. And this was said by Samantha Wilson, a full-time sales associate at Bellingham's Macy's, uh, who wrote this in an email for the, the, Belling, the Bellingham Herald. There are 11 Macy's locations in Washington, and according to the union, over 20,000 people have already signed an appeal to boycott them until they come back to the table with a fair offer, which shows a diversity of tactics, which is important, and that also they're willing to call a full-on boycott of all their stores despite, for one, only having one store on strike right now, but then for two, willing to expand the strike, and it just shows that if this really starts to not show any signs of alleviating from the company that the pain is going to be ramped up yeah so all solidarity with these uh these workers at at this macy's and fuck you macy's stop pretending you don't have a union uh grow up and and come back and bargain like adults exactly um but you know actually sticking with the ufcw for but for a uh, more pleasant story we have the extraordinarily rare case of voluntary recognition and and not only that but a company actually working with a union like grown-ups in this country now uh you know i know that we have uh portrayed this as voluntary recognition and i just want to like question that just a little bit because they did allow for card check is that the same as voluntary recognition not necessarily but i i'm considering the considering the uh it's it is not the exact same thing but based on the conditions operating within the united states uh, economy i'd consider it the difference to be uh, minimal Mm -hmm. um sorry that point aside but well, the other thing, though, is is that usually when we hear about true voluntary recognition where the workers just give a letter to the boss and be like, we decided we want a union, and the boss is like, okay, cool, <laughs> without having the card check neutral election. Um, I mean, it's card check is basically voluntary recognition. <laughs> like, it, it, because, again, you're presenting the boss with the cards when you're presenting it. So, like, right. I, I think it's a small Yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. But anyways, when we talk about voluntary recognition, we're usually talking about small individual stores with, like, where it's, it's like, you, it has one owner and they're, like, it's, it's a human being that you can negotiate with rather than a giant faceless corporation. <laughs> Um, like we've seen, we see plenty of small business tyrants, like we have talked about on this episode of the show, but you do have the rare case where you'll see like a coffee shop or a pizza place or whatever, like, uh, or any other number of very small businesses potentially allow for voluntary recognition. But this week we actually have one involving a, a big company, which is Ben and Jerry's because, you know, we had talked last April about the fact that Scoopers United won their card check election, got their their recognition from Ben and Jerry's, actually got this big company to not interfere and not pull a bunch of bullshit like every other company does. 
in this country, and they they easily won uh, in, in at the the flagship store in Burlington, Vermont. Um, and they are part of the SEIU affiliated Workers United Network, just like you know Starbucks Workers United. And they have been in negotiations with Ben and Jerry's for their new deal for the last several months, almost a year. And so. Workers have actually voted on the new deal just a few weeks ago, but the official announcement of the new one-year contract came this Thursday. And as reported by The Rake of Vermont, uh, like a, a, a site covering the uh, labor movement there, the process of unionizing has been really transformative for the workers there uh, because before winning their union, the, the that store location in Burlington was operated on basically a contract model. They had just a third-party company came in, and they're the ones actually running it under the Ben & Jerry's name. Uh, well, since the union organizing drive came, the, the workers got the company to take the store over directly so they could negotiate directly with Ben & Jerry's instead of this labor contractor. They won their neutral card check election, and now they've won a new contract. And so... Rebecca Mendelson, a former worker at the store who helped with the campaign, but now actually works directly for Workers United, uh, told the rake, quote, we had no sick time. We had no paid time off, no 401ks, no sort of insurance options even available to opt into, end quote. Wow. And so this is, these are major wins. This is like a series of major wins. Yeah, because the New Deal has an immediate 50% increase to starting wages from $14 an hour to $21 an hour. Uh, it paid time off for the first time, sick time for the first time, and an additional seven new holidays. <laughs> so PTO and giving people seven days paid off per year on top of that. So it also shifts the really the compensation model at the store to being tip-driven, to being wage-driven, which is good, uh, and tips are no longer openly solicited, pointing out that the model is now to just actually pay people a living wage. And so, unsurprisingly, the New Deal was ratified unanimously by the Burlington workers. And in a press release, the union called the contract, quote, an exceptionally big deal. And we hope the company's decision throughout this process will inspire other companies to show their employees the same respect and serve a new standard within the industry, end quote. I think that that point is really, I mean, it's hopeful, but also really highlights what we were saying in the overtime episode recently is that when we were talking about the confessions of a union buster is how those really awful things don't happen in these sorts of cases where the union buster is making the the conditions so awful and ruining everyone's lives and threatening to take everything away and and that this shows that union busting itself should be beyond illegal like should be all mm -hmm. in all aspects illegal because this sort of negotiation at least under the current system that we have is actually productive reasonable and has a level of respect not seen in almost any other aspect of the of industries yeah well and thankfully you know i i <laughs> I, I will say I think they're being uh, very optimistic about the idea of, of, of other companies' administrations being super uh, influenced by this. But within Ben & Jerry's, the momentum at least has already seemed to be paying off because, as I mentioned, there is a UFCW connection here because last month, workers at Ben & Jerry's manufacturing plant in Waterbury, Vermont, also 
uh, unionized, this time with the UFCW, and also once again with uh, the company remaining neutral, not interfering, and allowing them to just have that card check election and easily sail through. So really love to see that. Love to see these first contract wins. And, uh, you know, even if I'm not particularly optimistic that more capitalist companies are going to follow suit, I mean, just in, you know, unionizing the whole chain within Ben and Jerry's is, is big and getting these contracts, which affects not just Ben and Jerry's, but whether the company, whether other similar companies want a union or not. Raising these conditions for these workers puts pressure on those shops, just as we've seen in so many other industries. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it really highlights the power of a union in ways that are beyond just the individual locations or even the the broader like organizations of, let's say, UFCW. Exactly. But I mean, another thing that we have consistently talked about, especially over the past last over last year, which was was like huge for academic workers we've been talking about them winning strikes and we have one of the like another great positive examples uh in this particular story of this we positive, love a strike like this, this right is a great strike uh of, of great positive themes in the labor movement that we have seen over the past year and this time we see it at the Washington State University in Vancouver, Washington, which just like all these words are just like so many. They they don't evoke to me Washington. They like because <laughs> it's Vancouver, which should be in Canada. Right. Not, yeah. Not only that, but also <laughs> with like with the the Palestine rally in Washington with over 400,000 people rallying for Palestine. Oh, Washington, I think D.C. Of, I think of Washington, oh, D.C. Yeah. And so all of these things are not pointing me in the direction of the Pacific Northwest. But Yet another is, reason if we just used indigenous names, things would make more sense. Exactly. <laughs> but in this story, 1,800 students, student workers across the USW system voted to unionize back in November of 2022 joining UAW Local 4121, covering primary, primarily grad student workers teaching courses, but also included undergrad students, student workers as well. Uh, the union actually began negotiations for the first contract shortly after the union was certified last year, but that drug on for months. And as reported by Northwest Press, Northwest Labor Press, negotiations stalled over refusal over the refusal of the Washington State administrators to agree to fair terms <laughs> such as on some minor, just a few minor issues. Yeah, it was such as uh, wages, health care, paid time off. Uh, and so, in response to that, the members voted 93% in favor of striking in that in, in this past November uh, after winning their union. Thankfully, the strike paid off incredibly quickly. Workers at multiple WSU campuses hit snowy picket lines on Wednesday morning, January 17th, and within hours, the school admins caved and a new tentative agreement was reached, which uh, we, love, we love to see it. Well, hours hours folks the the new deal includes a raise of the minimum monthly stipend of 39 percent and an immediate raise of at least five percent for workers whose wages already exceeded the new higher minimum of twenty three hundred dollars a month 
Undergrad workers want a minimum wage increase to $17 an hour. These minimums will see adjustments upwards at the Vancouver campus where the cost of living is higher. So recognizing that cost of living is an important aspect of a contract. And the contract also formalizes tuition and building fee waivers for all grad students working at least 20 hours a week and adds six weeks of parental leave and a stipend for childcare. Lower Those are big he- ones. Yeah, and lower healthcare deductibles, support for international students, and, and so much more. And like it just shows the power of this strike that mm-hmm. all of these demands were already laid out, and suddenly the administration is like, all right, you know what? This is really important that we do not have these interruptions. Let's just give it all. Well, yeah, I mean, I think ultimately, like, what I think that illustrates, like, when you have such a fast uh, strike like that, is that basically what the bosses were betting on is that you were not going to be able to get everybody together to strike. They were just trying to, they're like, oh, you're bluffing. You won't do it. You won't actually strike. They, they that That's basically their belief that they can just, they're in charge and you won't actually do the thing that you're saying you do. And then as soon as you cross that Rubicon, like, oh, shit, uh, we do actually need all these workers to make this go. Uh, fuck, give them what they want. <laughs> yeah, and it shows the importance of that unity because, mm-hmm. I mean, if that strike had had, you know, considerable amounts of scabbing or something like that, we might have seen a more intransigent administration. But this also shows an example that we can use in our organizing of the power of unity. Yeah, absolutely. So congratulations to these workers at Washington State University on your incredibly efficient strike. <laughs> Yeah, hell yeah. All right, so that is going to be the end of our stories for this week, but obviously not the end of our episode, because uh, as we do at the end of every episode, we've got some funny pictures to look at. And this first one is uh, uh, just a, a little uh, a tweet that I thought was pretty funny that I saw in the Discord, which was uh, someone saying, my roommate and I have started texting each other like democratic fundraising messaging. And it's I, I just think that the message of the, the, the screenshot of their text was really funny because there's a photo of Nancy Pelosi here. And uh, it's uh, Nava texting her roommate, uh, Paige, it's Nancy Pelosi, and I'm asking for your help. When Nava takes out the trash, I need you to replace the bag. Otherwise, we're letting MAGA win. Can I count on your support? And just like, at least, you know, because being in a in a, uh, a roommate relationship can be stressful because <laughs> it's difficult to like have different expectations. People have different amounts of time. And so to have a little brevity in, in so- that relationship defuse it by talking like the most annoying people on earth <laughs> exactly and so it was very funny and i and i do really love uh this this uh this dig at the democrats so <clears throat> this next one is uh is is very much i think this comic is called glass shine this is this is one we've seen uh this problem all over the place where you have this i guess this is a is a wolf in a business suit sitting at a bar or a table or something crying we're so understaffed and then this this cat in a tie who uh i guess is supposed to be like you know either uh, a waiter or whatever at this place comes up and is like here's my cv or resume for people who don't know what that means <laughs> curriculum vitae um but and then the 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 
the wolf takes it. I think it's a warthog. And looks at or he doesn't even look at it and just immediately blows his nose on it, tump, crumples it up and throws it down. And he goes, nobody wants to work anymore. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, like this has been shown at least at, looking at the press on this particular issue. Uh, like so often. I just like the, oh, the labor shortage, this and that. It's really just giving bosses an excuse to, to like cry over absolutely nothing, as people are definitely out there willing to work. Yeah. Well, uh, but of course, this also goes along with the refusal to like give any workers like a reasonable working conditions that they would actually want to apply for your dog shit job in the first place. Yeah. That's definitely true, too. Then, and uh, that's related. Yeah, go well, ahead. Because that, that, that's related to our next meme, which is <laughs> this is basically honestly this could be like a, this is like a uh, like a union version of a Fallout meme, uh, but it, this is from IBEW Sp- Space Force, <laughs> where it's this is like a nineteen fifties era comic book style of of shading, and it's a you got a, a robot here yelling at a, a guy and basically like. 50s rockabilly greaser era getup with mm-hmm. the the pompadour and the the like bomber jacket and the robot angrily I guess because the robot with a metal face can make facial expressions is like right to work area unions are obsolete and so <laughs> the 50s dude is like it just has a shotgun obsolete these nuts Tin Man. <laughs> yeah, I just like the the uh, aggressive nature uh, of like you know. Just, I I don't know. I I just enjoy this one because of partially of the aesthetic, but also just like you know what, fuck this 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 anti worker bullshit. Uh, just a shotgun for this fucking robot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I look. We talked about being in favor of aggressive negotiations about AI, and I feel like that sums it up. Yeah, absolutely. Then uh, this next one is a, a tweet from the Eugene V. Debs Museum, which probably actually is just someone's account. Who, uh, but but anyway, uh, it says make sure to let your make sure to leave your faucets dripping. It's cold. Uh, which you know, if you're in a pretty in a basement, you know, it's good to have the water running a little bit to make sure that the pipes don't freeze. But this particular faucet has a Teamsters jacket on because apparently the drip is. The the union trip. That's right. <laughs> uh, and then the last one, the home, the 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 wholesome meme for this episode is just a quote from Michael Brooks in in, in front of some, I guess, nineties retro wave shading in the background with some uh, uh, incredibly well pasted on uh, sunglasses. Be ruthless to systems. Be kind to people. Hell yeah! Uh, I I was actually going through the memes and I was just like, we need something wholesome. And then I remembered I had pulled this one and I just like it. It's got the the cool, like staticky aesthetic. It's got a really nice quote. And also it's true. Like you should not like, you should be ruthless to systems. You should pull shotguns on robots. Uh, and <laughs> also when it comes to people, you know, be nice, be, be kind. It depends. It depends on the people. It's true. It's true. I think that it's more of a it's a it's a general sentiment to to as a a comparison because if you're going to be ruthless, yeah, no, it's a good mantra. But like any rule, there are exceptions. Of course, of course. 
All right. Well, that is where we're going to wrap for this episode. We want to thank everyone who supports us. And if you'd like to support us as an entirely listenership show, we really appreciate it. You can do that at patreon.com slash workstoppage. We're going to be starting a new series on women's history of labor, which is actually going to be a pretty long series. So become a patron to get that as well. Shockingly, as- shockingly, folks, uh, women as a group have a, a, quite a bit of history. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot to cover <laughs> on half the population. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and so if you want that and also you have access you get access to all of our other bonus content including the what I referenced earlier the Confessions of a Union Buster episodes that we did with Pat, the admin in the Discord. Also, that reminds me, join the reading group. But uh, on top of that, the links for everything to follow us, to write us reviews are at workstoppagepod.com. Should follow us in all of those places. Listen to Beep Beep Let Us, listen to Red Game Table. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest. And solidarity forever. Solidarity, everybody. Thank you.